Thank you for listening to this audio message from Christ Fellowship Leesville. We exist to make disciples for the glory of Jesus. We pray God uses this message to help you grow in your walk with Christ. To learn more about Christ Fellowship, please visit us online at ChristFellowshipNC.org. Well, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 10. And as you're turning there, uh, we invite any of our children who may be participating in our children's class to make your way back to the room there at the back where our volunteers will be there to greet you and to instruct you in God's Word there in that class this morning. But as I mentioned, we're continuing through 1 Samuel. We're going to be in Hannah's prayer in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 this morning. So I want to read our passage for us and then take a moment to pray and to ask for the Lord's help. So beginning in 1 Samuel 2, verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Let's pray together. Father, what a privilege it is to be able to gather together as your people under the truth of your word. And Father, we are just resting in your mercy and grace to us this morning. Father, we know that the only reason that we are here together in this room is because of the finished work of Christ that stands in our place, because of your spirit that you have sent to dwell in all who have trusted in Jesus. And so, Father, we are declaring that we are depending on the ministry of your spirit this morning to be at work in our hearts through the truth of your word. And we pray that you would reveal the glories of who you are to us. Father, we pray that this passage would help us to see the world the way you see it, that it would help us to understand how you operate in this world, that it would give us a biblical worldview to lay as a foundation under our feet that we might put sin to death in our lives and pursue faithfulness to you. And so, Father, as we ask every week, we ask for you to accomplish what what only you can do among us, that you would do above and beyond what we could ever ask or think, that you would be transforming us and conforming us more and more into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And Father, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would allow me to only speak what is true of you and true of your word, and that you would use it to help your people. And so, Father, we pray that you would do all of these things for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. 
And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come into 1 Samuel chapter 2, I just want to be sure we remember kind of what's happened in chapter 1 so that we understand what we're heading into as we hear Hannah's prayer and get the context for why Hannah prayed the words that she prayed in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So in chapter 1, we're introduced to Elkanah, this man who has two wives, uh, Peninnah and Hannah. And passage very early on intentionally tells us that Peninnah had children, but Hannah did not have any children. And every year, Elkanah would take his family to Shiloh, to the house of the Lord, to worship and to make sacrifices there. And the passage tells us that every single year that they went, Peninnah would provoke and mock and ridicule Hannah for not having children. Year after year after year, this woman would do this to Hannah. And what we find is in the middle of chapter one, finally, Hannah is at the end of herself. She can't take it anymore, as none of us would be able to take it anymore either. And she breaks down and doesn't eat and breaks down in tears and weeping and goes to the house of the Lord in the midst of her weeping and in her heart while her lips are moving, but no words are able to come out of her mouth. She cries out to the Lord, asking him to give her a son. And she says, if he will give her a son, then she will give that son back to him all the days of his life. And as we come to the end of chapter one, we find that God indeed not only heard, but answered this prayer that came from Hannah. And he, he indeed gives her a son. He gives a barren woman a son and she keeps her word to the Lord. And when he comes to the age of having been weaned, she returns him to the house of the Lord to serve the Lord there in the temple in the house of the Lord at Shiloh all the days of his life. And then it's in response to what God has done to answering her prayer, this desperate cry to give this barren woman a son. We have her response in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, this glorious response to what God has done for her. But what's interesting about this prayer of Hannah is that it's not what I think we would typically call a prayer of thanksgiving. It doesn't really sound like a prayer of thanksgiving. She says a lot of things we wouldn't normally include in a prayer of thanksgiving. She's certainly rejoicing because of what God has done. She's rejoicing because God has given her a child, but ultimately it turns into a prayer that exalts God, who he is, his character, his it proclaims how he operates in the world, how he intends to display his providence and his sovereignty in the world. So I think one of the most important questions we can ask as we try to understand exactly what this passage is meant to teach us is why, why, does, why does Hannah respond this way? Why is this the way she prays? Because typically, I think if we're being honest, when we give thanks to God for the things that he's done in our life, even miraculous things he's done in our life, our prayers don't typically sound like this. This recounting of God's character and nature and the way he works in the world. So why is it that she responds this way? Now, perhaps someone could argue, well, I mean, look at who her son is. <laughs> He's Samuel, right? He has this pivotal role in the history of salvation. But, but Hannah didn't know that at this point. Hannah didn't know her story would be recorded in Scripture that we would be talking about right now. So that's not why she responded this way. She was, I think, what we would call a 
a common woman who was barren in an extremely difficult situation who cried out to the Lord and the Lord blessed her. And yet, even though this is who she is, she had no particular role. She erupts into this grand and all-encompassing praise of our sovereign king. So why, why did she do this? Why did she take being blessed by the Lord in this way and turn it into this grand proclamation of who God is? Well, I think there are a couple of ways to answer that question as we be sure we just understand and get a lay of the land here. First, I think it is clear that Hannah was a theologian. And all I mean by that is she knew her God. She, she knew who God was. She probably had the scripture that was available to her, which likely would have been the first five books of our Old Testament called the Pentateuch. She probably was intimately familiar with it. She had seen how God had operated in history up to this point in the world. She had come to know him through the truth of his word. I mean, this kind of language that she uses doesn't come from nowhere. This is a godly woman who knows the character of God. She knows the character of the God she worships. She knows the character of the God to whom she has cried out and from whom this glorious answer has come. Therefore, I think when when Hannah sees that the Lord has blessed her, she doesn't see this as this random one-off event that has just happened in her life and hasn't happened to anybody else. No, what instead she understands is that what God has done for her is a continuing, is a continuing echo of who God is and how he loves to operate in the world. She sees herself in the flow of the history of God's merciful acts. So in other words, she doesn't want to just simply give thanks to God because he answered her prayer and blessed her, though she she certainly wants to do that. No, she also wants to acknowledge and proclaim exactly who God is. You see, she sees her story. She sees her story as a part of God's story, not because she saw herself as important, but because she understood what God had done for her. And what God had done for her is what God tends to do. He works in the lives of the weak and the humble. And this is what God has done. So therefore, this prayer serves two purposes in this book. It helps us see how we ought to respond when God is at work in our lives. We ought to learn from this and respond to the same way. We too should respond when God is at work in our lives, whether it's a miraculous way or just what we would maybe call normal everyday providence of God working in our life. We too should respond in the way Hannah responds by giving him the glory and seeing how we ourselves are part of his larger story and that the way he has worked in our life is the way he works in everyone's lives who follows him and who belong to him. And so we should find ourselves in God's story. But the second purpose this prayer serves is that it it prepares us to see what's going to happen in the rest of this book. It prepares us to see what's going to happen. In many ways, this prayer, this poem here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, should serve as the lens through which we view everything that happens in the rest of 1 Samuel. So it's like when you, you know, I don't, maybe just because I'm an old crusty guy, I don't know. If you go to 3D movies, I don't go to 3D movies because I can't stand wearing the glasses. But if you go to a 3D movie and you don't wear the glasses, it's blurry and makes no sense and it's distracting and you can't figure out exactly what's going on. I mean, generally you can tell, but it's annoying. It'll probably give you a headache by the time you're done. But, But if you wear the glasses you're supposed to wear when you're watching the movie then not only is it crystal clear, but it's right in front of your face and you can see things like you've never seen before. It's like you can reach out and touch the objects that are flying at you. 
Well, in many ways, that's what this prayer is meant to do for us. It's like these glasses we are to put on to prepare ourselves so that we can see what God is going to be doing in the rest of 1 Samuel. We should see everything that happens in the rest of 1 Samuel in light of what Hannah says in this prayer. She is describing to us who God is and how he operates. And the reality is, however, that that worldview is not limited to just 1 Samuel, of course. It's also how God simply operates in the world. And it's the glasses we need to put on, the worldview we need to embrace even in our lives today. This is who God is and how he operates in the world. So even before we get into the details here, just in the introduction, I want to start with just some application. This passage is meant to shape the way you view God and the way you see the world. And so what we need to be praying God will do this morning is use this passage as as these glasses, these lenses through which we see the world and that we will put them on and we will understand how God operates in this world. That's what I hope God does for us this morning. And I even pray that we will continue to follow Hannah's example. And when we see God intervening in our lives, rescuing us, blessing us, bringing comfort to us, bringing peace to us in times of trouble and suffering and hardship, we need to take time just like Hannah does to be sure we're cleaning our lenses and putting those glasses on and seeing that God is at work in the world. So how is it that we do that? How is it that Hannah responds and how should we respond to the miraculous work of the Lord in our lives so that we can be sure we're seeing the world the way God sees it? Well, there's three simple things that Hannah does in this passage. And it's what we too should be doing when we come before him in response to his work in our lives. We should, number one, praise God for his holiness. Praise God for his holiness. Number two, we should praise God for his sovereignty. And number three, we should praise God for his faithfulness. So let's just start right there at the beginning. We should praise God for his holiness. Let's look there at verses one and two. Hannah prays and says, so the first words that she says is, my heart exalts in the Lord. This is just a word for rejoicing. She is rejoicing in what God has done. She is exulting in the Lord. Her heart is lifting up and rejoicing in what God has done in her life. But not only that, it says her horn is exalted in the Lord. And that word exalted is a slightly different word than exalted, though it sounds very much alike in our English Bibles. The word exalted means to lift up or to raise up. And so this horn that she references here, my horn is exalted, is most likely referring to like a horn of an animal that would be an instrument that would be used in in time of battle that would be blown on the battlefield. This horn is being lifted up. God has lifted this up as he has exalted her. And because of that, he has lifted her up above her enemies, one of which was Peninnah. But I think even enemies in this passage that we see in verse 1 refers to more than just Peninnah. I think it's more of a declaration about all who stand against God and against his people. And as she is rejoicing in the Lord, she says that her mouth derides her enemies because she rejoices in his salvation. You see that there in the second half of verse 1. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. Now, what exactly is she getting at by saying that because she rejoices in her salvation, she's deriding her enemies? I think it's simply saying this, and she rejoices in the reality that God has rescued her 
from her physical distress, her emotional distress. That's what that's referring to here. He's given her a son. He's rescued her from her desperate situation. And as she rejoices in the Lord, she is deriding. She is mocking. She is holding in contempt all the words that Peninnah said to her, all the mocking words that the enemies of the Lord bring against his people. We put them down, not by addressing them, but by simply rejoicing in what God has done. We show them the error of their ways when we rejoice in what God has done for us and through us for the glory of his name. And the way in which she rejoices in the Lord begins in verse 2 and continues on throughout the rest of the passage. She rejoices in the Lord by recounting the glories of who he is. And what she does is give praise to him for his holiness. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none holy like him. He is unmatchable and unique in his holiness. In fact, it is his holiness that is the subject of the praise of the four living creatures around his throne. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 tells us that the four living creatures never stop proclaiming the holiness of God. Revelation chapter 4 verse 8 says this, And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Do you hear that? Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. For all of eternity, well, not all of eternity, since their creation, they have not ceased to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. He is a holy God. He is unmatchable. He is holy because He is pure and undefiled. He is holy because he is morally perfect and righteous and just in all that he does. And therefore, in his holiness, it means that he is set apart. I mean, do you see that there in verse 2? There is none holy like the Lord for, or because, is the word we would use. So there is none holy like the Lord because there is none beside you. The reason you are holy, God, is because there is no one like you. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. No one and nothing belongs in the same category as God. There is none beside him. He is a category of one. There is no one to whom he can be compared. He doesn't belong to some family or category of gods of which he is the supreme God. No, he is the God, period, the end. There aren't other divine-like creatures of whom he is the greatest. No, there are no comparative words to be used when talking about the holiness and person of God. He is the holy God. He is in a category all of his own. He is not a greater God. He is the only God. He is not the most powerful God. He is the omnipotent, sovereign king of the universe. That's what Hannah is saying when she says that he is holy. There is none holy like him. There's none beside him. There is no rock like our God. In other words, what Hannah is proclaiming is that there is no one else. There is no one else on, on whom we should build our lives. There is no one else worthy of our praise and adoration. He is matchless and he is alone. I mean, just meditate on this. He has existed 
for all of eternity past, and he will exist into eternity future, and he alone is self-sufficient and self-sustaining. He has life in himself held together by the will of his own power. He is dependent on no one. He depends on no one for his existence. Everything that exists outside of God was brought into being from nothing by him, including the four living creatures who surround his throne. Who else, therefore, do we turn to? Who else do we worship? Who else is worthy of giving our lives to? Him and him alone and he alone is worthy of our praise and our adoration. Therefore, even when we're tempted, you see, we often talk in this church and we ought to talk about it because the Bible talks about it. We talk a lot about how we handle suffering and how we ought to respond to suffering. But we should also add that it is also dangerous Uh, the way in which we respond to blessing can be dangerous. You see, when we are blessed, we can become at ease. And when peace comes into our life, we can sit back at ease, right? That's the pattern of the book of Judges, right? When things got easy, they turned their backs on God because they didn't need him anymore. And so when blessing comes, we can start becoming self-reliant. We can forget that the reason we were blessed is purely because of God's mercy and grace, not because we are somehow special or because we deserved it or earned it. And so therefore we need to follow Hannah's example and acknowledge that God is the one who has done it and that he alone deserves the glory and the praise and the adoration and that we don't deserve the praise and the glory and the adoration, that it belongs to him. It's not about us. It's about him because he alone is holy. So we have to fight against the temptation in our lives when things begin to go well. We have to fight against that kind of natural thing that happens in our heart that tends to to spin out idols of self-reliance and pride. We begin to spin out idols of worldly success. But instead, we need to fix our hearts and our minds on our unique, self-sufficient, incomparable, holy God. Because when we proclaim these truths, we will be well-suited to fight against the idols of pride and self-reliance that can creep into our hearts. And instead of pride, we're shaping our hearts into hearts of humility that puts self to death. So as we see 1 Samuel bear out, as we see the story of 1 Samuel progress, what you're going to see is not a God that is at war against other deities. You're going to see a God who rules over heaven and earth, a God who is holy and incomparable. There is no one like him, and he stands alone as the one who, to whom all glory and honor and blessings belong. And he alone, therefore, exercises his divine sovereignty over the world. And so the second reason Hannah gives him praise is because of his sovereignty. We must praise him for his sovereignty. Look with me at verses 3 through 8. The next words out of Hannah's mouth in verse 3 is, Talk no more so very proudly. Talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. Now I think in one sense, Hannah is speaking to the enemies of the Lord. Put your arrogance to death. But I think she's also speaking to herself and speaking to you and speaking to me. That we need to remove arrogance from our lips. We need to put pride to death in our lives. Now why is that? Why does she say this in verse 3? Well, I think the next five verses, in verses four through eight, she's just going to show us why it is that we must 
remove arrogance from our mouth and put pride to death. Those next verses tell us exactly why we ought to be humble before the Lord. So depending on how you count the next words that she says, there's somewhere around nine or so reasons she gives us why we should not be arrogant or proud. There's nine reasons in her prayer that she's saying to God, that she's saying why we should put pride to death in our lives. And all of these reasons center around the sovereignty of God over the universe, that he is the one to control. And that is just the point, because here's the reality. The greater understanding and belief that you and I have in God's sovereignty over all things, the less room for pride there is in our hearts. The more you believe and understand about God's sovereignty over all things, the less room for pride there is in our hearts. So let's look at these statements and understand how they connect to this need to talk no more so very proudly and let not arrogance come from our mouths. So in verse 3, she says, The Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. In other words, he sees all things and he knows all things. He is omniscient. He is all-knowing. There is nothing hidden from his sight. He is a God of knowledge. And not only that, also by him actions are weighed. He is the one who will be our final judge. He knows what we have done. He knows the motives that you had for doing the things that you have done. He knows how we are tempted to pride in the things that we have done. He knows when the accomplishments that we boast about are nothing more than the, are nothing more than the result of favorable circumstances that were really, if we're honest, out of our control and his guiding hand and the help of others. He, he knows why they happen, but yet we speak so proudly. But by him, actions are weighed. He sees them, and he will be the final judge of our actions. He sees through the facade to the motives of our hearts when our actions are motivated and corrupted by pride and arrogance. He is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. And then in verses 4 and 5, we're reminded that God's sovereignty often ends up with unexpected outcomes. Throughout the book of 1 Samuel, we've already saw it in chapter 1. We're going to see it throughout the rest of 1 Samuel, these unexpected outcomes. And some people refer to it as a reversal of fortune, the, the way God operates in the world. And Hannah just recounts this in the next few verses. She says in verse 4, the bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. The bows of the mighty, the very ones we would expect to win the battle, the very ones who gather themselves up against the Lord and his people, and we expect that there's no escape, but he breaks their bows. And instead, he gives strength to the feeble for the glory of his name. Verse 5, those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The very people who are at ease and experiencing prosperity and wealth, God in a moment's notice can take it all away from them. And instead, they have to labor and work and barely scrape two pennies together to be able to feed their family with a loaf of bread. And then he can take those who are starving and hungry and give them food and sustenance and cause them to cease to hunger. He is sovereign over it all. And then Hannah brings it to her personal situation. She is reminding us that, that, that God is the one in control of outcomes. It's not about how strong you are or how much money you have or how many resources you have. In the end, 
God is, in the, God is the one in control of outcomes. He is sovereign over them. And she brings it into her own personal situation with the next statement in verse 5. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. Now, before we get into that statement and the next few that come after it, I want to just take a moment and recognize that for some of you, what this passage is going to say about God may feel very uncomfortable. These are not easy things to hear or to think about, but our job is not to shape a God into our own image, but to see the God who is, who the word of God has revealed to us. And so we simply need to hear what God says about himself on the lips of Hannah in this prayer that is in our Bibles. So Hannah, again, bringing it to her personal situation at the end of verse five, she says, the barren has born seven. God is able to open the womb of the barren. We saw it happen in chapter one. We've recounted last week how God multiple times over, even up to this point in his history, has caused barren women to bear children for the glory of his name. We saw it with the wives of the patriarchs. We saw it with God bringing Samson into the world through the wife of Manoah. This God has operated this way. He, the barren is able to bear seven children. He, he's able to do this. He's able to give life to the barren. But she who has many children is forlorn. Now, the word forlorn, even in our, our English sense of the word forlorn, means abandoned or lonely. In other words, what God is saying here is even the woman who has many children can be left alone. This word in the original language is often used to refer to uh, a widow. A widow is forlorn. Their spouse has been taken away from them. They are left by themselves. And so what God is saying here about himself, what Hannah is saying about him is that he can give life to the barren woman and he can take away the children of she who has had many. Now, we see this happen. We see it happen in Job's life. God allows all of Job's children to be taken from him. We'll see this later in King David's life. He, he has this, um, I was going to say affair. It's not an affair. He forces himself uh, onto Bathsheba and she becomes pregnant and the Lord takes that child from them. God is sovereign. He gives life and he takes life away. That's why the very next verse, I think, says, verse 6, the Lord kills and he brings to life. Our lives, our very lives, and the lives of those we love, all of our lives rest in his gracious and sovereign hands. Our next breath is a gift that God has given to us. We are totally and utterly dependent on the will of the Lord to allow us to keep breathing. Job chapter 34 verses 14 and 15 says that if God should gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish and man would return to dust. He sustains the universe, including you and I, by the word of his power. Our lives rest in his hands. So what room for boasting is there? Right? Let arrogance not come from your mouth. Put pride to death. Talk no more so very proudly. You're only here. I'm only here because God has allowed us to be. The Lord, second half of verse six, he brings down to Sheol and he raises up. Now, 
we could do a whole sermon on trying to understand what Sheol is in the Old Testament. And there's all kinds of opinions about what it refers to. And we simply don't have time to get into all that this morning. But let's just simply say that whatever it is, it is a place where dead people go. I tend to lean toward thinking it's just a reference to the grave, but others would disagree with me. But nevertheless, the point is, Sheol is a place where the dead go. It's talking about those who have died, but this is what God is able to do. This is what God is able to do. Do you see this in verse 6? He brings down to Sheol and he what? He raises up. Now, some people want to argue that there's no concept of resurrection in the Old Testament, but my goodness, I don't know what else this verse means. He brings down to Sheol. I don't care what you believe Sheol is. In some way, it refers to someone having died. And then this verse says that he then raises them up. God is sovereign over life and death. And even after death, he can still raise people up from the dead. This is who God is, brothers and sisters. He is a resurrecting God. He brings down to Sheol. He can put people in the grave and he can bring people up out of the grave. He is sovereign over this world. He's sovereign over our lives. And even those who are in the grave, he can bring back. And then if all of that hasn't laid out his sovereignty over all things enough, verses 7 and 8 go on to say that the Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. There is nothing, I think, more insulting to the, insulting to the American psyche than verse 7. We make ourselves rich, right? We do it. It's our hard work. It's our diligence. It's our discipline. No, no, not according, not according to verse 7. It's the Lord who does it. He makes poor and he makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. If someone is poor, he can raise them up from the dust. If someone's needy, he can bring them up from the ash heap to sit with princes. This is who our God is. So listen to me this morning. If you have personal wealth, and the reality is if you live in America compared to the world at large, you have personal wealth. If you are wealthy, it is because of the kindness of God to you. Because God could bring all of your hard work to nothing if he chose to do so. Those funds, that money, those resources could just pass through your hands like a sieve. So what you have is because of God's kindness to you. And listen, we have to acknowledge the other side of this verse. He, he doesn't only make rich, he also makes poor. He's the one who does it. And there are many people who are faithful followers of God around the world who are poor. And verse 7 says that he is sovereign over it. Now, listen, that does not mean, that does not mean if someone is poor and destitute that you have to give up and you can't try to bring yourself up out of poverty by working hard. There's nothing wrong with working hard. It's nothing wrong with doing that, but it's just to acknowledge that whatever situation you find yourself in in life, even if you're putting in hard and honest work, but yet you feel like you just can't come out of poverty, which happens for many people around the world, it's just to acknowledge that God is the one who controls outcomes, and we have to rest in his sovereign hand, that he makes poor and he makes rich, but the good news is he can raise up the poor from the dust. He can do it, and he has done it. But let's just reflect on the glorious truth of what it says here. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Now, let me tell you why you ought to be thankful that God operates this way. Listen with me. I know we've read this verse, this passage a lot over the last few weeks. But listen again 
to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, and see if verse 8 doesn't sound familiar to you. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Just pause there. You were as spiritually impoverished as you possibly could be. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all, all of us once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were as low and unworthy as we possibly could be. But, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Just pause there. It doesn't say, but God being rich in mercy because of how great you were, but God being rich in mercy because of how righteous you were. No, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And now listen to this. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He can raise up the poor and seat them with princes. He can raise up the spiritually impoverished and dead and give them life and raise them up and seat them next to the king of the universe. And it's what he's done for you, and it's what he's done for me, and he did it because he loved us, not because we earned it or deserved it. Our God is a sovereign God. And why does he have the authority to do, to do all these things? Well, look at the end of verse 8. For because the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. No, this is not an argument for the flat earth. This is poetry, <laughs> right? This is not a flat world with these pillars supporting it, as some people try to argue. No, this is simply saying that the foundation of this world, of this universe, of our very existence, is built on the fact that God himself holds it up. It all belongs to him. So therefore, let not arrogance come from our mouths, right? How, how can we recount all of these things that God can break the bow of the mighty, but the feeble bind on streak, that those who are full hire themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry are given food, that the barren woman can bear seven, but the woman who's given a lot of children, God can simply take them away from her. He kills and he brings to life. He can put in the grave and he can bring out of the grave. He can raise up the poor and seat them with princes. If he does all of that, what room for boasting is there? Whatever we have in our lives is because God has given it to us. So let us not boast in ourselves, but let us spend our lives boasting in him. Let's not exalt, let's not exalt ourselves. Let's be reminded of what Isaiah 66, chapter 66, verse 2 says, which says that the one to whom God will look is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit. The Bible tells us that he is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God wants us to be a humble people, resting in and trusting in his sovereignty. You see, the arrogant and prideful are too busy drawing attention to their own greatness instead of God's greatness. You see, every time we speak with pride and arrogance, we are proclaiming that there's some aspect of the universe that we control and not God. You are putting yourselves on the throne, and that throne belongs to him. So let not arrogance come from our mouths. And therefore, when we have this worldview, when we put on these glasses, it allows us to all the more clearly see his faithfulness at work. Finally, number three, let's be sure we praise God for his faithfulness. Look there with me at verses 9 and 10. 
Notice with me that a significant shift happens in verses 9 and 10. There, there's this shift in the verb tense, right? All of a sudden, it's about what he will do. All, it's all of a sudden future-looking. Hannah before has been talking about what God has done, the way in which God currently operates, and then there's this shift in verses 9 and 10 to what he will do. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones. The wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces against them. He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horns of his anointed. You see, Hannah takes what has happened to her, as I said earlier, and she places herself in the flow of history of how God operates in the world. And she not only sees how God has operated in the world, she not only sees how God is operating in the world, but it turns her attention to the future to see that God will continue to be faithful to his people. He has been, he will be, and he always will be. And he demonstrates his faithfulness in such a way that he receives all the glory and the praise. Like, look look there with me at the last line of verse 9. This is key for us understanding what the Lord is saying to us here through Hannah. For, or because, for not by might shall a man prevail. That's giving us the reason why God does the things that he does. Now think about this for a minute. Verse 9 says he's going to guard, he's going to guard, watch over the feet of his faithful ones, meaning the feet of his faithful ones, right? Every step they take, he's going to watch over them, protect them, guard them. So any, anything good that happens in the lives of the faithful ones are because God has guarded them and watched over them every step of the way. He guards the feet of his faithful ones, but, but not so for the wicked. Not so for the wicked. No matter how it may appear that they are prospering in this life, it is not so for them. They will be cut off in darkness. Now, why does God operate this way? Why does he guard the feet of his faithful? And why does he cut the wicked off in darkness? Because not by might shall a man prevail. In other words, God has ordered our world in such a way so that at the end of the days, he will be the one who gets the glory. It will not be by might that anyone is standing on the last day. It will not be because of your own strength. It will not be because of your wisdom. It will be because he guarded your steps every single day. If any man is left standing, it will be because of the Lord's grace and kindness to us. I mean, this is what the last verse of the book of Jude tells us, the last two verses of the book of Jude. It says that he will make us stand. Jude 24 and 25 says that to us. This is one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. He alone is able to keep you from stumbling and he alone will present you blameless so that he gets all the glory. Because not by might will a man prevail, and God will see to it that no man prevails by the strength of his own hands. That's what verse 9 says to us. Those who take their stand against God will be defeated, verse 10, 
the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. They shall be shattered against them. He will thunder in heaven. He will have the final victory. He will judge the ends of the earth. Just pause there and recognize that that means he is sovereign over all peoples, all nations. Our God is not a tribal deity. He is the holy, unique, unmatchable, sovereign king of the universe. And all nations will be accountable to him. He will judge the ends of the earth, but he also will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, remember, there is no king in Israel at this point in history. So we can speculate where this came from in Hannah's heart. I don't know ultimately, but I think there's some sense in which everyone kind of felt that that was the direction the history of Israel was heading, that there was going to be a king. And of course, just a few chapters later, the people ask for a king. We have the poems of the Pentateuch that talk about the scepter of the promised one, this one who will rule from Judah. So there have been hints throughout the Pentateuch and the what's called the poetic seams of the Pentateuch that talk about this coming king who will rule. And I think, remember Hannah, what, what did we say? Hannah was a theologian, right? She knew these things. And I think that had influenced her view of what was to come. I think she knew in some sense of not fully understanding that a king would one day come and he would be the promised one and that he would even come from the tribe of Judah and that God would give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. You see, even the king of Israel would only be strong by the grace of God alone, by his doing alone. It is not by might that man shall prevail. It is by the strength of the Lord. And we're going to see that play out in 1 Samuel. I mean, there are some amazing, like Hollywood, unbelievable things that men and women accomplish in 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings. But this reminds us, put on those lenses as you read and remember It's because they had humbled themselves before the Lord and he gave them the strength to do it. He is the one who gives strength to his people just as he gave strength to Hannah when she humbled herself and couldn't even form words on her lips and was heaving in tears and crying out to the Lord. And in her weakness and desperation, he gave her a son and lifted her up and exalted her horn and accomplished ultimately our salvation by bringing Samuel into the world who would anoint King David from whom our Lord and Savior would come. You see, once again, we're reminded that God loves to bring victory through humility. This is how God operates in the world, which means when we get to the New Testament, if we know our Old Testament well, when we get to the New Testament, the gospel should just make sense. This is how God has always been. And Jesus humbles himself and takes on flesh and he doesn't come riding on a horse of victory to accomplish our salvation. No, he lays down his life and takes the wrath that you and I deserve on himself and suffers the wrath of God on the cross in our place. God loves to bring victory through humility. Now, one day he will come as the victorious king. He will come and he will establish his reign for all eternity, but it will have been accomplished through the cross. So let not arrogance come from our mouths and speak no more so very proudly. Let's give him all the praise and the glory that our holy, unique, unmatchable God deserves. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful that you are a holy, unmatchable, unique God. There is none like you. You have no competitors. 
There is no one to whom we can compare you. You are sovereign over this world. It belongs to you. You have set the earth on your pillars and they belong to you and you give life and you take it away. Father, you, you're able to bless. You're able to curse. You give life, as I said, Father, and you take it away. So Father, just remove arrogance from us. Help us to give you all the glory and praise that you deserve because you make rich and you make poor. You exalt the humble and you bring down the proud. And Father, ultimately, we know that how you have always operated in the world will be the way you will continue to operate. You will continue to be our faithful, sovereign King. And so, Father, we trust in and rely on your promises that you have made to us. And we look forward to the day when Jesus will come, when he will come and establish his kingdom, and we will be dwelling in our glorious resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth. And so, Father, may every moment in our lives where we see your faithfulness on display be a reminder to us to put on these worldview lenses, to see the world the way you see it, that you are a faithful God and you will not fail us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.